we are standing, Father, on holy ground as we come to this text where you rend the heavens and open up for Isaiah a vision of your greatness and your goodness, of your absolute majesty and splendor. And we've just sung of that. We've just sung holy, holy, holy. And we're quoting Revelation there, and we will see again in Isaiah the threefold holy. So have your way, guard my mouth, speak what is true. Everything that you are is beyond language, and we pray that you would, by the power of your spirit, filling this place now, instruct and teach us in a way that goes beyond words. Give us what only you can give us, a vision and a conviction of your absolute purity, of your immensity. I pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, I have found, uh, you know, as a preacher, one of the things that's always challenging is you, you want to declare what's true about God's word, but you're also trying to appropriate those truths in your own life. I mean, you're trying to live out what you uh, have the privilege and the calling to declare every week. And, you know, I talk with you guys about fear and anxiety sometimes, and that, that's a reality in my life as well. I'm sure it's a reality in some of yours. I, I have found, and I'm curious if some of you might be the same, that since becoming a parent, I, I wasn't really prone to fear and anxiety, and then I became a parent, and there's a whole new way in which I battle uh, feeling fear and anxiety. Anybody else experience that? I mean, it's, it's like I have to check the doors three times at night to make sure they're all locked before I go to bed. Um, I also, like I'm, this is like, this is the weirdness of it, is I will, if we get home and find that one of the doors have been unlocked, now we live in a pretty safe neighborhood, but if I find one of the doors have been unlocked, I have to check under every bed, in every closet, like I'm opening the shower curtain. I don't have a weapon in my hands. So I don't know what I'm gonna do. Before the kids go to bed, I gotta check everywhere. You know, so I, fear can be a real thing that we battle, that we wrestle with. I wanna tell you that, you know, there's a fear that I experience in being a parent that I found that's new in these last, you know, seven years of my life of being a, a dad. But there's another fear that I experience in being your pastor. And I, I wanna share that with you. And the fear is this. My fear is that you would be content with less than a grand vision of God in your life that you'd be content to sort of have salvation, to say, okay, I'm good. I, I've, I've placed my faith in Jesus and sort of you know, made that deal. And now uh, that grants me eternal life, not by anything that I do, but by work that I believe in that he did for me. And from there, I'm kind of good to stop pursuing God and stop going after a real clear understanding of who he is. That's my fear as your pastor, is that you would be content to come and sit in the pew. I guess we don't have pews, we have chairs. Come and sit in the chair, uh, hear a, a, hopefully a decent message and sing a few songs, maybe throw a few bucks in the offering plate and then kind of check that box and say, that's good. But I want you to know that there is so much. My, my fear is that you, would, that you would feel you've got enough of God. That you would say, That's, I, I've got all of God that I want. That's enough. 
It's enough to not be too scary. It's enough to not be too challenging. It's enough to not require me to give up this or that. It's just, it's enough. That's why I pray for you all the time. I pray, God, don't let it be enough. Make them hunger for more. I pray it for myself. I pray it for you. I share that fear with you um, because the series that we're in now and the word from Isaiah today in Isaiah chapter six um, speaks directly to that. It speaks directly to the grandeur and the greatness, the bigness, the majesty, the moral purity, the absolute astounding nature of our God. And my prayer is that you and I would see with renewed eyes that if you are someone who's followed Jesus for a long time and you find that your heart feels a little callous that God would break right through that with, a, with this vision of his absolute splendor and majesty and renew you today. My prayer for you is if you are um, examining faith, we always have folks who are joining us just examining faith. Do I believe what it is that Jesus has said Um, as you join us today, my prayer for you is that you would see a God that is worthy of your entire life's dedication, that he is beyond comprehension in beauty and in goodness. So as we look at Isaiah 6 today, as we look at Isaiah 6 today, God's word teaches us that to serve God well, we have to gain a life-altering understanding of his greatness and his goodness. To serve God well, We have to gain a life-altering understanding of his greatness and goodness. Now, I want to read Isaiah 6 in just a moment, but I want to encourage you that if you weren't with us last week as we launched into this series, we're going to be in it for a long time, about a year, with a few breaks here and there. And um, there are some pieces of information to be really handy for you to have. So I don't often refer back to sermons and say, okay, go listen to this one. But if I could encourage you to go back and listen to last week's sermon, because what we tried to do was cover the major themes of Isaiah and some historical context that we'll refer to again and again. It will just help you to have that in your background, uh, in your mind. So just an encouragement to go back if you weren't with us last week. Now you might ask, why are you starting in Isaiah chapter six? You just said we're gonna go through the book of Isaiah. It would make sense perhaps to start in Isaiah chapter one. But we're gonna start in Isaiah six because the first five chapters of Isaiah is Isaiah beginning to do what it is that God has called him to do. But Isaiah six is God calling him to do it. Isaiah six is the moment in 740 BC that we talked about last week where God reveals something of himself to Isaiah and then calls him and commissions him to go and to serve him and to declare to his people some specific truths. And so it's fitting, I think, to start with this commissioning, this calling of Isaiah uh, right at the outset of the book. And then we're going to backtrack and go to Isaiah chapter one. So Historical timeline-wise, we are at the very first moment of Isaiah's ministry in the book. We're six chapters in, so we'll jump back to chapter 1 next week. Let's read Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 13. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy 
is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am I. Send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their eyes, their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. And I said, how long, O Lord? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste. And the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. Well, I said that the big idea here in Isaiah chapter 6 is that to serve God well, we have, have to have a life-altering understanding of his greatness and goodness. Now, I want you to understand that I don't mean that you have to have a vision as Isaiah had a vision. That was a gift of God to Isaiah. We don't find many like this. This is one of the very few glimpses we get into the throne room of God, and Isaiah is granted this as he is being prepared to serve God. But while you and I may not have the same type of uh, impartation of God's vision to us, we do, however, in the same way that Isaiah did in order to serve God well, need a view of his greatness and his grandness that absolutely alters our life. Now, when I say greatness and goodness, let me explain, because I'm using those terms very intentionally. I'm not just kind of throwing those around as one of any number of adjectives that I could use to talk about what we need to understand about God, his greatness and his goodness. When I say God's greatness, what I mean is that we need a life-altering understanding of how immensely majestic and big God is. That he is overwhelmingly immense and transcendent and sovereign and powerful. When I say the greatness of God, that's what I mean. And when I say the goodness of God, what I mean is that we need to see how absolutely, perfectly pure and morally upright and untainted by sin and deeply loving our God is. That's what I mean when I say his goodness. Both of these things are on display here in Isaiah's vision, both the greatness and the goodness of God. Because friends, you can be great without being good, right? You can be immensely large of great magnitude and you cannot be good. And you can be immensely good. You can be 
pure and kind and loving, and you cannot be great. But both of those things are necessary for us, a life-altering view of the greatness and goodness of God. So here's what I want to do as we look at Isaiah. I want to give you uh, four reasons why we must gain this understanding. And then I just want to talk about the greatness and goodness of God as it's revealed here in Isaiah. So that's our, that's our roadmap. We're going to start with the question, why must we gain this understanding? And perhaps you think, I, I think I get why we have to have this understanding. But let me give you a few, uh, a few things that I think are pertinent that are right here. The first one, though, is not in the text. It's just a philosophical concept that I, need, that I want you to have, that I want you to get about why you must have a life-altering understanding of the greatness and goodness of God, and it's this. It's because uh, if you're going to serve God, uh, if you don't serve him with that kind of a view of his greatness and goodness, then serving him tends to become, one, unconvincing, and two, self-centered. Unconvincing and self-centered. The reality is if you've ever tried to serve God by ministering to someone else, trying to encourage someone else, speak into their life, invest in them. If you've ever done that, you know that they will not be convinced by the reality that you're talking about unless they believe that you're convinced about it. Do you know that if you don't have a vision of God's absolute grandeur, one that's big enough to call you out of sin and into righteousness, one that is big enough to cause you to love the things of God more than the things of the world, one that absolutely floors you, if you don't have that, you will be unconvincing to other people because why would they want what doesn't seem to absolutely shatter your life? Why would their life be shattered by it? As I was thinking about this, my guess is, as I talk about, um, think about the person that you've known in your life who seems to be absolutely floored by the nature of God. My guess is you have a few folks like that. I thought of a friend of mine, Nick Bergstrom, who was a young guy who served with me uh, in student ministry back in Austin. And what was so interesting about Nick is he started at the University of Texas as a freshman. And he was kind of doing stupid freshman stuff, all right? That's how he would phrase it, stupid freshman stuff. Now, Nick was not theologically trained. Nick didn't have a lot of Bible knowledge. He didn't grow up in a family that worshiped Jesus. And somewhere on the end of his freshman year, he reached the end of his rope and God absolutely shattered him with a vision of his greatness and his goodness. And he began to understand that Jesus had died for him and rose from the dead and that his entire life was to be defined by that reality. And when Nick got that, it changed everything. And he came into our student ministry and I guarantee you, look, again, he didn't have a ton of wisdom that he was imparting or a lot of knowledge that he was imparting about the Bible. But if you talk to Nick, you knew that he absolutely was astounded by who God was. He was floored by it. And it came through in every conversation, everything he said. He wasn't cool. He wasn't like um, that sort of aloof cool that we think is so valuable, you know, where it's like, oh, I could take it or leave it. You know, it's like what your kids start doing when they reach middle school. Like they could take you or leave you, mom and dad, right? They're kind of too cool for you. He was done with all that because God had shattered everything for him. And I tell you, friends, if you ask any student in our ministry, hey, who, who is like influencing you to love Jesus? The answer nine times out of 10 would be Nick Bergstrom. Not because he was eloquent or exceedingly intelligent or really wise, it was because he was overwhelmed by the grandeur of God and God's goodness to him in Jesus. 
Ministry not overwhelmed by the grandeur of God is usually unconvincing. And the second thing it usually becomes is self-centered. It becomes about us, our recognition, our name, our acknowledgement. It just does because we have this gravitational pull towards self-centeredness and so much so that even trying to serve God can become a self-centered endeavor. How, how debased are we that that, can, that that can take place? And some of you are nodding your heads at me right now because you know exactly what this looks like. Because you've gone in with the greatest of intentions to serve God and to want others to know him. And somewhere in the midst of it, somehow you got all twisted up and it became about people acknowledging your smarts or your kindness or your goodness or your servant's heart or whatever it was. You just found that that was there. The guard against that gravitational pull towards self-centeredness is a vision of the grandeur, the greatness and the goodness of God. So that, that's reason number one why this has to be central for us. Number two is this. It's because people face real challenges that only a great God can deal with. People face real challenges that only a great God can deal with. In verse one, you notice that the text started in the year that King Uzziah died. Now that may just be a throwaway phrase for you, but the reality you need to understand is relates to the historical context. Here's what's going on. Uzziah has been one of the few good kings of Judah. Now, he has a pretty massive failing towards the end of his life. But other than that, he's done very well. And the Bible generally describes him as a very good king. And the people have thrived under his leadership. And so in 740 BC, if you remember from last week, Assyria is beginning to knock at the door of Israel and Judah. This threat is on the doorstep. They are coming to the gate. And at that moment, the king dies. Now, if you can imagine as a nation how you might feel if you're a small nation with a good king who's led you well and you've trusted that he would know what to do in moments of difficulty and moments of trial, and then that good king is taken from you right at the moment that it seems that your world might get turned upside down by this foreign invader. The people are facing an immense difficulty. It's on the horizon. And in that moment, that's the moment that God chooses to reveal to Isaiah a vision of his greatness and his goodness, of his absolute majesty. In the same way that Isaiah is given this vision of the high and exalted God so that he might go and speak to the people of Judah in the midst of their turmoil and in the midst of their difficulty, if you're going to serve God, you are going to be with people who are going through hard things. You know that? If you're gonna serve God, you will be with people in moments of great trial. And the question is, what will you have to give them? What will you have to give them? Will you have a great and a good God to offer them? Or will you have some nice grandpa of a God who really loves you, but sorry, he's not strong enough to do much about the thing that you're facing? What will you have to give to the people that God has called you to serve? What will you have to offer when cancer comes? Or their child is suffering and the Lord won't take it away? Or the child in the womb doesn't live? Or he takes their spouse and leaves them with young babies to raise alone. Will you be able to say with Job, though he slay me, yet will I praise him? Or with Paul, 
Do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. Beyond all comparison. So do not, do not look to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. People you will serve need you to have a vision of God that is big enough and grand enough and great enough to believe that he has purposes in the midst of their suffering that they may not fathom, but they are nonetheless true. They need you to serve them with a vision of God that will sustain them through the hardest moments. What will you have to offer? The third thing, third reason why we need this understanding is because seeing God's greatness and goodness causes us to see our people's sins are our sins. Look at verse five. Isaiah, after receiving this vision, responds and says, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Now I would argue that the first part of that response is what we would expect. Anywhere in the Bible that you see people encounter not just God, but even God's servants, the angels, they fall on their face prostrate because they're so overwhelmed by the power and the majesty of that which they are beholding. And so when we see Isaiah, this is probably the response we would expect. Woe is me. I'm lost. I'm a sinner. I'm a man of unclean lips. But the second part is what causes me to stand still for a second and take notice because he doesn't just say, I am an unclean man. I am a sinner. He says, I live among a people of unclean lips. In other words, I live among a sinful people. Here's what I believe is taking place in Isaiah as God is commissioning him now to serve him among the people of Judah is that he is causing Isaiah to see that his people's sins are his sins. That he's not going to allow Isaiah to stand at a distance and say, if only the people could get their act together and be more like me, all would be well. But Isaiah is undone by a vision of God that caused him to see his own sin and his own impurity in a new way that he'd never seen it. Because now it's held up against the brightness of God's absolute moral purity. And anything else to which it's compared, our sin may not look that bad, but you put it up against God's absolute majesty and all of a sudden you are undone by your absolute depravity. And not only are you undone by what you see in yourself, you recognize I'm a part of the problem of all my people. I'm not separate from it. I'm part of the problem. And so you don't stand at a distance and say, oh, people, come and get it together. You enter in among the people that God calls you to serve and you say, I, like you, am a sinner, but in hum- it, it brings humility to serving God when you recognize and are undone by a vision of God's grandeur because you are brokenhearted over your people's sins. 
You're not indifferent towards them. You're broken by your sin and by their sin. Now, what that, does, what that doesn't mean, friends, and Nate reminded us of this a few weeks ago when he preached. I thought it was so helpful. It doesn't mean that we don't grow in maturity and conquer certain sins and walk in victory over certain sins. It doesn't mean that we're perpetually always in the same place. We do grow in maturity, but our growth in in maturity only causes us to see the grandeur and greatness of God even more clearly. And when we see it, we recognize our sin even more clearly. We see it even more uh, accurately, which causes us to be humbled and then to be reminded that we are humble beggars who found bread, who live among other beggars in need of bread. So let us offer that bread. The fourth reason why we need a life-altering vision of the greatness and the goodness of God is because what God asks you to do won't always make sense. Do you know that? If you're gonna serve God, what he asks you to do won't always make sense to you. Look at what he says to Isaiah in verses nine through 13. I don't know if you caught this. God says, go and say to this people. All right, so he's giving him specifically what he wants them to go say. Isaiah, now I'm gonna tell you, right? I've given you the vision of my greatness, Now I'm gonna tell you, you said you're gonna serve me, I'm gonna tell you what to say. And you would expect something other, I think, than what he tells them. Go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. To which Isaiah responds, how long? Like, that's a crummy message. I don't want to say that. How long am I supposed to have to say that? And then God says, until cities lie waste without inhabitant, and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land, and though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. Who wants to sign up for this job? Anybody? You, you, you. Anybody? Who's in? No hands. Okay. Here's what God is telling Isaiah. I'm going to send you with a message, and it's going to have the opposite effect that you would think it would have. You're going to go and declare judgment, and the ideal response to that is repentance. Forgive us, We have sinned, but among the people of Judah, Isaiah, it's going to have the opposite effect. It is going to harden their hearts, not soften them. It's going to blind their eyes, not open them. It's going to make their ears deaf, not cause them to hear. That's what I'm telling you to declare to the people. Now, God's ultimate purpose, as we talked about this last week, his ultimate purpose is the triumph of his mercy. And in fact, we're gonna see that at the very end of 13. I left off one little phrase at the end of verse 13, you may have noticed. We're gonna to come to that. His ultimate purpose is the triumph of his mercy. But what God is telling Isaiah is, I know how long to leave my people under judgment. I am in charge of how long judgment will last and when it will end. You go and declare it. I'm going to cause their hearts to be hard in response to the message so that they would stay under judgment until I determine that it is time to not be under judgment. And then I will do something new. And we'll see that again 
Remember, we talked about this last week. We're gonna see cycles throughout the book of God's judgment and then a promise of hope and mercy. God's judgment and then a promise of hope and mercy all the way leading until we get into chapter 40 and beyond where you see even louder God declaring the triumph of his mercy. But here's the thing. Here's, we could go on and on about the idea of you know, God hardening the hearts of the people through the message that Isaiah declares. It's a challenging idea to all of us, I'm sure. But here's what I want you to take away from this as far as having a vision of the grandeur and greatness of God. Here's what I, I want you to get. It's that God will, when you serve him, call you to do things that will not make sense to you. I highly doubt this made sense to Isaiah when he was called and given this message. I highly doubt it. And the thing is, when you are called to serve God, you will have to do things that don't, at least at first glance, make sense to you as to why God wants you to do them. Let me talk for a minute about this idea of God's will. Now, I'm sure that we have all, at some point, asked the question, what is God's will for my life? Yes? About my occupation, where I go to school, who I marry, you name it, right? We've asked the question, what is God's will? And there's typically two schools of thought when it comes to, like, how do you discern what God's will is? I'm going to very much paint with a broad brush here, okay, so forgive me. But essentially, there's one view that says God has a moral will, which is what he declares is right and what he declares is wrong. And we look to the Bible and we say, we see don't murder, we see don't steal, we say don't covet, Right, And so we see those things, and those are the moral will of God. So I need to be inside of that moral will. When I'm outside of it, I'm outside of God's will. Everybody agree with that? If I murder someone, that is outside of God's will. Right. So he says, this is the moral will. And one school of thought says, know the moral will of God, and then inside of that moral will, follow whatever your desires are. So in other words, as long as I'm not outside God's moral will, right, I can... I can choose who to marry, which, whatever I desire, right? I can choose what job to take. I can choose where to live, right? And there's some value in that way of thinking because it enables you to understand that God is sanctifying your desires and your desires are not something, I'm gonna use a double negative here, it's, they're not something he doesn't use, okay? Your desires are something that God will use to help you discern his will. That's stated positively and probably better than the double negative, Okay? But here's the shortcoming to that school of thought when it comes to discerning God's will. The shortcoming is you never have to seek God, nor does, do you have a place where God can ask you to do something that you don't want to do. If I just say moral will, that's what matters, and then I insert into that whatever I desire, as long as it's not outside God's moral will, then what's missing from that? What's missing from that is me having to get on my knees and say to God, God, what do you want me to do? Where do you want me to go? What do you want me to say? If you're gonna serve God, he's going to invite you to do things that are not gonna make sense to you and friends that you're not gonna want to do. There are going to be moments where you're gonna say, I'd rather do this. We don't have to look really any further than Jesus, do we? who in the garden said, not my will, but yours, Father. In his humanity, Jesus cried out to be released from the will of God to go to the cross. And God said, this is my will. Walk in it. And Jesus obeyed. 
There's a need for us to have a high view of God because, friends, that's what sustains you in living out the will of God and pursuing the will of God even when it's not what your desires want to do. Okay. Now let's turn our attention. If those are four, and we could talk about a lot, but those are four reasons why we must have a great view and a high view of who God is. Now let's turn our attention then to the greatness and the goodness of God as it's revealed in this vision. In verse one, we hear again, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne The first thing that Isaiah is reporting to us as God opens the heavens to him is that God's power is not challenged. God's power is not challenged. It doesn't matter if the mightiest army is at the gates. God is not shaking in his boots. He sits on a throne of absolute authority and he declares as every usurper to the throne tries to exalt himself or herself and say, I have power on the earth. God has never for one moment in all of human history been fearful about someone taking his throne. There has never been a moment where the God of the universe thought, you know what, they're a real threat. He possesses all power. That's what Isaiah sees when he sees him on the throne. And then the next thing he sees is when he says, saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up In other words, what he's saying there is that the essence of his being is qualitatively different and better than all other beings. When he says that I saw the Lord, he was on the throne and he was high and lifted up. He's not just talking about spatially God was high. He was like up here. He's saying, I saw that God is of a different quality and nature than all other created things. Nothing is what he is. He is completely, look, if you and I, we are burlap, he is cashmere. He is saying that he is fundamentally from different material. He is something altogether different, high and exalted. That's what Isaiah is seeing about God, that there is nothing like him. The third thing that Isaiah sees is that God is overwhelmingly big. Saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Did you catch that? All right, so the train of his robe is the hem of his garment. So think about the very edge of a garment that you would wear. Let's say that you put on your bathrobe, and the very fringe of that doesn't even take up one seat here. And this being that Isaiah is glimpsing The hem, just the very edge of his garment, fills the entire temple. That's the equivalent of saying that the hem of his garment filled every square inch of our church building. That's about the size. Can you imagine how big a being must be for the very edge of their garment to fill up every square inch of this building we're sitting in right now? Just ponder that for a moment. That is massive, astoundingly big. And look, we, when we come in contact, you might think, okay, yes, like God is everywhere present. I get that God is big. Why is that a big deal? But think about this. 
you and I, when we encounter things of great size, are usually overwhelmed by them. Why do people go to the Grand Canyon? Why? Why do we go there? Why do we trek all the way across the country to see a hole in the ground? Right? That's essentially what it is. It's a, big, it's a hole in the ground. Why do we go there? Because it's a big hole in the ground. Because it's so big that when you stand at the edge, you are overwhelmed by the sheer magnitude of the thing you are viewing. When we encounter big things, I'm not just talking about big, I'm talking about big. We have a visceral reaction to those things. And here Isaiah is saying, this is bigger than anything I've ever encountered. This is a being unlike every other being. He, in sheer magnitude, is overwhelming. Now notice, here's what's interesting, right? Notice that Isaiah, as he's declaring what he saw, he says, I saw the Lord. And he saw him on his throne, high and lifted up. And then he begins the description and says, the hem of his robe filled the temple. And then you might think that he would go, and then, and he would start to work his way up and describe him. Where does he stop? Just the hem. As if to say, that's as far as I can go. The rest is beyond language. I don't, there's no way for me to express to you what else it is that I have seen. Let me stop at the hem of his garment. That's how glorious, that's how magnificent, that's how big he is. The next thing we see about God's greatness and goodness is that the most powerful and pure beings in existence may not look at or approach him. The most powerful and pure beings in existence, may not look at or approach him. In verse two and four, we see these creatures, these angelic creatures, the seraphim. They're standing above God, and that word seraphim, this is the only place in the entire Bible where it's used. So if these creatures are described somewhere else in the Bible, they're described under another name. But here in Isaiah's vision, he calls them seraphim. That word literally means fiery ones. And in the Old Testament, fire is used as a symbol of purging or purifying or judging sin. And so essentially what Isaiah is saying is the fiery ones, the pure ones, are at the side of God and they're declaring now the worth of God in their words. But as they do, what, what do they do? They have six wings and with two they cover their faces and with two they cover their feet as if to say we cannot gaze upon a being this pure and majestic. Not even us, the seraphim, the purest of pure, unaffected by human sin. These are not fallen creatures like you and I. These are heavenly creatures unaffected by the fall of humankind. The fiery ones of great purity. They are immensely powerful. When they speak, what happens to the temple? The doorposts shake just because they spoke. Now, when's the last time that happened for you? Right? Nothing shakes when I speak. And they must cover their faces, not to gaze at the purity of God. And they must cover their feet as if to say, we cannot approach one of this sheer beauty. And then they fly in service to God, active, saying, we will now do our job 
which is to declare what they say next and leads us to our next point. Fifth thing we see is that there is nothing to which God may be compared. That's essentially what they are declaring, the seraphim, when they say, holy, holy, holy. They repeat it three times because biblically, the repetition of something three times essentially means perfect and completion of that thing. It's the perfect, completed version of whatever is said three times. So to declare holy, holy, holy is to essentially reiterate the idea of holiness and say he is perfect and complete in holiness, which is reiterative. It's, it's just restating the same thing, right? I, I found this helpful, and so I wanted to share it with you. This is um, another pastor, John Piper. I just didn't feel I could do better than this as I read this this week. Listen to how he describes from this text now the idea of God being holy. You know, put your thinking caps on with me and just stay with me and, and really hear. He says, God is holy. Remember how Reepicheep, the gallant mouse at the end of the voyage of the Dawn Treader, if you've read that book, it's a C.S. Lewis book. Remember how he sailed to the end of the world in his little coracle? Well, the word holy is the little boat in which we reach the world's end in the ocean of language. The possibility of language to carry the meaning of God eventually runs out and spills over the edge of the world into a vast unknown. Holiness carries us to the brink, and from there on, the experience of God is beyond words. In other words, what Dr. Piper is saying is, holiness is the closest you can get with words to describing what God is like. And beyond that, God goes beyond words. Then he says, the reason I say this is that every effort to define the holiness of God ultimately winds up by saying God is holy means God is God. Let me illustrate. The root meaning of holy is probably to cut or separate. A holy thing is cut off from and separated from common use. Earthly things and persons are holy as they are distinct from the world and devoted to God. So the Bible speaks of holy ground or holy promises or holy men and women, holy scriptures, Almost anything can become holy if it is separated from the common and devoted to God. But notice what happens when this definition is applied to God himself. From what can you separate God to make him holy? The very goodness or godness of God means that he is separate from all that is not God. There is an infinite qualitative difference between creator and creature, what we just talked about. God is one of a kind, in a class by himself. In that sense, he is utterly holy, set apart. But then you have said no more than he is God. Do you see that? Language cannot contain the holiness of God. Or if the holiness of a man derives from being separated from the world and devoted to God, to whom is God devoted so as to derive his holiness? to no one but himself. It is blasphemy to say that there is a higher reality than God to which he must conform in order to be holy. God is the absolute reality beyond which is only more God. When asked for his name in Exodus 3.14, he said, I am who I am. His being and his character are utterly 
undetermined by anything outside himself. He is not holy because he keeps the rules. He wrote the rules. God is not holy because he keeps the law. The law is holy because it reveals God. God is absolute. Everything else is derivative. Now, I know that's, we're, com- we're trying to work with big ideas there. But what I want you to understand is that when we say God is holy, we are stretching the fabric of language itself, straining it to try and say something about God that still does not ultimately come close to declaring what he truly is. He is beyond comparison to any other thing, completely underived. He draws his being from no one else. He simply is. And everything that is good is good because it aligns with his goodness, not because he aligns with it and therefore becomes good. That's what Dr. Piper is saying. This is a profound revelation of the nature of the holiness of God beyond comparison. Now, the last thing that this vision shows us, and then we're gonna take communion together is that every square inch of the earth is completely full of his splendor. Now think, we've just heard holy, holy, holy. In other words, set apart, distinct from all that is created. That's who this God is. And then the very next words for the seraphim are shocking because they are the whole earth is full of his glory. In other words, the visible manifestation of his holiness is made apparent in everything that is created. So he's completely separate and other and distinct from all that he's created, but he also reveals himself in them in such a way that his glory is seen in the things that he has created. So friends, if you want a grand view of God that is high and exalted and lifted up, and you feel overwhelmed by the reality that how can you have this of one so beyond language and so beyond comprehension? Take heart because he has declared that every square inch of the world in which you live is declaring that he is glorious. Every blade of grass, every segment of DNA under the microscope to the largest mountain in the Himalayas, every bit of it declares God is glorious beyond comparison. Every person in this room, every cell in your body as a part of the created order declares that God is glorious. Now I wish that I could be in the room and hear the seraphim say what they said because I wanna know what they were most astounded by. Did they say the whole earth is full of his glory? Or did they, were they astounded when they said the whole earth is full of his glory? Or did they say the whole earth is full of his glory? Which was it? I don't know. Maybe it was all three. The whole earth is full of his glory. Utterly astounded that he would fill every shred of his creation with his great splendor and majesty. Now, friends, the last thing we need to see is this. If we want a great and high and exalted view of God, remember what he did for Isaiah. He had the seraphim take with tongs the coal from the altar of sacrifice so that atonement could be made for Isaiah in his sin so that he could behold God and not die. And he touches the lips of Isaiah and purifies him 
as if to say, Isaiah, I can do this for you and I will do it for your people. And then he goes on to give him his message. And at the very end, I don't know if you noticed, when he's using the illustration of the stump and he's saying, I'm gonna continue to judge my people until there's only a fragment of them left in the city. Everyone else will be taken into exile. And then I'm still gonna judge the fragment in the same way that, I would, that you would, if you cut down a tree, then you would also burn the stump to get rid of the stump. That's the analogy he's using. And then he says something that's absolutely astounding after that. Because up to that point in the analogy, it's the people who are not taken into exile to Babylon. He's prophesying about the future. It's those people that are the stump. They represent that stump that is gonna also be judged. And then he says, the holy seed is the stump. In other words, what he's saying is, yes, in the short term, my people will be like that stump that I will judge and purify. But there will be another one that will encounter judgment on behalf of all the people. They will be the one that ultimately encounters my judgment. It's the Holy Seed. And who is the Holy Seed, friends? Jesus. God, right here in Isaiah, is declaring, I know how to keep my people under judgment for the time that they need to be under judgment. But my ultimate purpose is the triumph of my mercy because my judgment will ultimately fall not on them, but on the Holy Seed. He is the stump that is burned so that we might have life. He is the coal taken from the altar of sacrifice and touching our lips so that we might become pure in the presence of God. If you want an exalted view of God, there is no better place to look than the cross of Jesus Christ, the holy seed who has sacrificed for us that we would be astounded by the sheer magnitude of God, his wrath poured out upon his son and see his goodness in it, both his greatness in his wrath poured out and his power and his goodness in his wrath poured out upon his son and not upon those who would come to him by faith. That's what God is declaring to us through Isaiah. And if we want that vision of his greatness and goodness, we find it through the cross.